There we go. Let's, pr- let's pray together. Let's pray together. Father, we gather today. Lord, and we love to do this. God, we love to remember the greatest news that ever was. That you sent your son, Lord. Jesus, that you came. And that you saved us from our sins, Lord. You finished the work. And we love to give you praise and glory and honor. You're the Holy One of Heaven. You're the name that is above every name. And we love to worship you, Lord. We love to lift you high. God, we pray that you would be hallowed in our hearts today. Lord, we pray for the saints this morning in this room. God, we pray that our love for you, our trust in you would be renewed this day. God, we ask for that that promise of the apostles that times of refreshing would come from the presence of the Lord. Come refresh your people, God. Refresh us in the gospel. Remind us, Lord Jesus, that you are everything to us. God, we pray that you would address us from your word today. We ask, Lord, for the power of your Holy Spirit to be displayed in your church. Help help us to hear. Help us to hear rightly, overpower all the things that are said against us, Lord, the distractions of the world, indwelling sin. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would conform us this day to the image of Jesus. Lord, we pray today for those who don't know you, that are about to hear your word, that you would open those ears, that you would heal that blindness, Lord, and that you would speak with authority and power, that you would speak. You are the Savior, Lord. This is why we we are even gathered today to honor you, not only as the righteous judge, but as the Savior of sinners. Come, Lord Jesus, we pray. In your name, amen. All right, we come now to the preaching of the Word of God. If you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. The first thing we'll do together is we'll read God's Word. The living, breathing Word of God. The most important words you're going to hear in the next hour... We're going to read them together right from the pages of Scripture. Matthew chapter 7, beginning in verse 28. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. This is God's word to Grace Community Church this morning. If you've been with us in recent weeks, you know that we have just come through a series on the Sermon on the Mount as we make our way through Matthew's gospel. And this passage this morning shows us the effect of the Sermon on the Mount, the immediate effect that the teaching of Jesus, the most famous sermon he ever preached, the immediate effect it had on its hearers. Jesus finished these sayings. That's a reference to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7. And Matthew tells us that the crowds were astonished. 
That's the effect of the Sermon on the Mount. And Matthew tells us why they were astonished. Because they just heard a man speak like no other man had ever spoke in the history of the world. And the mark that stood out to the hearers of this sermon is the word authority. And that's what we're going to look at together this morning. The authority of Jesus Christ. The authority of his teaching. The preacher of the Sermon on the Mount, the Lord Jesus Christ, was a man of extraordinary authority. Now, I want you to understand that passages like this in Scripture are especially rich. Passages that pull back the veil on the nature of Jesus. This is um, the most important thing that you could ever know is what is God like and who is Jesus. And so passages like this are especially rich because they reveal Jesus' nature to us. And in this passage, we are told that he is a man of authority. The whole purpose of the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, is to bring you to a knowledge of God in Christ. The highest thing, uh, the highest goal, the highest aim of the God-breathed words of Scripture is that we would know God through Christ. In fact, Jesus says that eternal life in John 17... It's to know God and to know His Son, Jesus. Just to know Jesus is eternal life. And so, the knowledge of God in Christ is so important that it's described in three different ways. This is is basically synonymous with salvation. Coming to know God is being saved. And then Scripture also puts this knowledge of God in Christ in A sanctification category. So all the battles with sin that you're having right now as a Christian. And everything that's going on in your life as a Christian. Romans 8 says the end goal is to conform you to the image of Jesus. That's the end goal. The ultimate aim in your life is that you would know God and Christ. And guess what? Glorification for the believer. The end of our sanctification. Guess how scripture talks about it. Seeing the Lord, beholding the Lord, and being fully and finally transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. Knowing God in Christ is everything. And so this passage and passages like this in Scripture is especially rich. Especially rich because it shows you who Jesus is. It shows you the nature of of Jesus Christ. And so we're going to dig in this morning with that heart, with that aim. Lord, I want to know you. I want to know you as you are revealed in Holy Scripture. And this passage specifically points out this morning that Jesus was a man of extraordinary authority. And we want to know him. We want to know his glory, all of his perfections. Alright, we'll start this morning of, uh, of the authority of Christ. Sometimes the best way to know what something is, is to know what it's not. And we do this all the time, even in you know, catechizing children. God is a spirit. He does not have a body like me. Okay, uh, uh, You know what something is by knowing what something is not. Salvation is by faith, not by works. 
And this passage teaches us about the authority of Jesus by showing us what it's not. And Matthew tells us that the authority of Jesus is not like the scribes. So if you're taking notes this morning, you don't have a study guide, that's where we're starting. The authority of Christ is not like the scribes. Now, as we read the Gospels, we can put together, um, you know, some light, some insight on what the culture of the scribes was like. And I'll mention just three things. The scribes, when they handled the law of God, the word of God, they did not handle it authoritatively. And I'll give you three reasons why. Number one, because they grounded their teaching in human authority. And we see this happen several times, even in the Sermon on the Mount, that when the scribes taught the word of God, that this was a culture of quotation, that they, in their teaching, it wasn't so much, um, you know, experts in the words of the law itself. These men were experts in the rabbinic tradition, the interpreted tradition that had grown up around the law of God. And so when you heard them teach, they were always quoting from other famous rabbis who had preceded them. And their constant appeal to these other interpreters, these famous rabbis, undermined their authority as they handled the word of God. And so it wasn't like this. It wasn't like hearing men say, thus says the Lord, boom. Or it is written in scripture, boom. It sounded like this. You have heard it said of old. You know, Rabbi um, Hallel says this, or Rabbi Gamaliel says this. You have heard it said of old. Their constant appeal to other men, man-made tradition, undermined their authority. And Jesus' teaching was completely different than this, and we'll come back to that in a minute. But the culture of the scribes, their handling of the word of God, it lacked authority. And Jesus' handling of the word of God was different. His teaching was authoritative. Number two, the, the scribes lacked authority because they taught the doctrines of men as the word of God. Listen to Mark chapter 7, verse 13. Jesus says this, indicting the scribes. He says, you make the word of God void by your tradition that you have handed down. And Jesus says, and many such things you do. So he's indicted. He said, you do this all the time. You're making the God-breathed words of Scripture void by teaching as doctrine the commandments of men. And so we need to understand this. That when a man stands in the place as a preacher of the word of God, and he brings man-made commandments to the people of God, He's attempting to bind the conscience with something other than Scripture. He's trying to bind the conscience with something man-made, something besides God's Word. The Bible says that preachers are to be stewards. They're to sit under the Word of God. They're supposed to be men under authority. And when you bring man-made commandments and try to bind the conscience of others the preacher asserts himself not as a steward, but as a Lord, as a Lord of the conscience. And when a person does this, he ceases to have a right to speak for God. 
And therefore, he loses his authority. It's no longer authoritative teaching because he's coming with the words of men and not with the words of God. And as we're going to see this morning, the scribes did that. But Jesus' teaching was completely different. His teaching was not like the scribes. Number three, the scribes undergirded their teaching with hypocrisy. You see this in Matthew 23. Whole chapter is basically an indictment against the scribes and the Pharisees. And in verse 3, Jesus says this, really simple. They preach, but they do not practice. That's what they do. They preach that message, but they don't do what they preach. They preach, they do not practice. And we know this. And this happens in other spheres besides teaching the word. The fastest way to undo your message is to undergird it with hypocrisy. You won't even obey your own teaching. You're just teaching this stuff. You won't even live it. And that's what the scribes did. They undergirded their teaching with a hypocritical lifestyle. We'll come back to this this morning. Jesus never did that. Jesus was completely different than this hypocritical handling of the Word of God. No one ever lived out what he preached like the Lord Jesus did. So his authority was not like the scribes. Now, I would guess this morning that almost everybody in the room has heard at some point in your life authoritative teaching of the Bible. Somebody handling the Scriptures in an authoritative way. And what I mean by that is this, that that you've, you've heard teaching from someone that confronted their hearers with a reality that their words were carrying a divine power and a divine weight. It wasn't just somebody up there talking about, you know, a bunch of man-made stuff. The Spirit of God was resting upon this teacher's words and, that, and they had a mark of authority. I'm guessing we've all experienced that to, to greater or lesser degrees. A teacher's word carrying the power of God. Now I want you to understand that mark of authority that you could think about Probably you have heard it many times in your life. It has nothing to do with the following. It has nothing to do with volume. Oh yeah, I've heard authority before. That's when people like scream all the time. Nope, that's not authority. That's not authority. It has nothing to do with volume. It has nothing to do with mannerisms of, yeah, they just sound really excited, you know. Uh, looks like their hands are chasing bees while, while, while swatting bees while they're preaching. That's, that's authority. Nope, that's not authority. Has nothing to do with volume, has nothing to do with mannerisms, and it also has nothing to do with macho personalities. Okay? So slide that away for just a minute. That's not authoritative teaching of the scriptures. What is? Teaching the word of God with authority has everything to do with a preacher being faithful to the text of scripture. A man comes with words from another world and speaks them into this world. And when someone does that, when someone handles the Bible in this way, it bears a mark of otherworldliness. There's a divine power at work in the church. The power of the Holy Spirit is on display. These are not just the words of men. This is the faithful preaching 
of the Word of God. This is why the Bible commands pastors in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2, to preach the Word. Preach the Word. Preaching is a stewardship. A man under authority. It's not, hey, give them five life hacks of, of what they would really enjoy. No, uh, the call of a pastor and a preacher is to say what God says. Because what God says, all scripture is breathed out by God. You don't have to polish it up. You, it's like a lion that you let it out of the cage. It is alive. It is powerful. You just faithfully say what God has said. Preach the word, Paul tells Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2. And when a man does this, there's an authority on his preaching and teaching because he's faithful to the author of Scripture. This is the mark of authority. Again, I'm guessing you've heard it many times in your life, but I want you to think about this. So whatever that experience is like in your life, where you've heard God's word with power, when we come and talk about the Lord Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, this is a category all by itself. And so you're thinking like, yeah, I know a little bit about this. It's kind of like that, you know, one sermon I heard that time. No, it's not. No one ever spoke like Jesus spoke. Ever, ever spoke like Jesus spoke. This is the only time, this is the only possibility when the preacher of Scripture and the author of Scripture are the same person. Can you imagine the authority? Can you imagine the authority, not just of a man faithfully preaching the word of God, but God incarnate speaking? It had a divine weight that no man had ever spoke like Jesus spoke. He's in a category by himself. One of the things that, I, that, I, that I've enjoyed thinking about is this, you know, this imagery. Um, and in the last hundred years, uh, not so much as popular as it was 20 years ago, was to have the, the words in red in your Bibles. You know what I'm talking about? So you, you read the Gospels and the words of Jesus are highlighted in red. They're set off to the side that, you know, you got these black words and then you see those red words you're like, whoa, Jesus is speaking. Time to listen up. And there's some problems with that because all of Scripture is God, God breathed. But you get the point, right? These are the words of Jesus. Red letters, can't argue with it. This is Jesus' word. But what I want you to understand is that everything he ever spoke was the word of God. Everything he ever said. If you would have, if you would have followed him around and just heard all manner of conversation about all manner of topic, everything you, you, he said, you could have took a pen and scribed it down in red letters and said, that is the speech of God incarnate. Everything he says is the word of God. Think about how this is not true of prophets and apostles. We have the words of the apostle Peter. Think about this. And we have his infallible, inerrant words in 1st and 2nd Peter. It's a part of the word of God. Every word in 1st and 2nd Peter is the word of Peter, but it's also the word of God. Church history tells us that Peter is also the apostle that stands behind the gospel of Mark. And so we have Peter, when he speaks, he speaks the word of God, but not always, right? 
Not always, right? He sinned against Jesus. He denied Jesus. You couldn't take a tablet and follow Peter around and everything that Peter said conclude, oh, everything that Peter says is the word of God. You couldn't do that. In fact, in Galatians chapter 2, the apostle Paul rebukes Peter that his life is not in step with the truth of the gospel. But Jesus is in a category all by himself. Everything he says is red letters and that means that everything this crowd is hearing is words from a man who spoke like no other had ever spoken he was anointed he was a preacher anointed with the holy spirit without measure no one ever spoke like jesus i want to mention two features of jesus's teaching that would have especially struck his hearers As man, this man is teaching with authority. And the first is this, the confrontational nature of the teaching of Jesus. If you're taking notes this morning, this would be bullet point number two. The confrontational nature of the teaching of Jesus. Now I want you to understand, by me choosing that word, I don't mean confrontational in the sense that Jesus is trying to pick a fight with somebody else. That's not what I mean. I mean, there's something about the teaching of Jesus that brings you to a crossroad. A confrontation happens. A crisis happens with the teaching of Jesus. And you have to go one way or you have to go another. He won't let you ignore him. That's what I mean by confrontational nature of his teaching. Authoritative teaching always bears this mark, an aspect of confrontation to it. You could say it negatively. Jesus did not give TED Talks or life hacks. He did not give us axioms to live by or, hey, here's something that you should think about. He brought authoritative words to his hearers. He said things like this. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus said things like this. Cut off your hand. He really said that. Cut off your hand. Or why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things that I command you, Jesus says. Or enter the narrow gate. You got this wide gate over here. Come to the narrow. Come down this hard path. He calls for a response. He comes and he teaches and he speaks as Lord. He doesn't come like a philosopher to muse and to give us an idea to consider. He comes as a Lord to be obeyed, to be submitted to. The confrontational aspect to his teaching. Part of this is tied to his person. That when Jesus speaks, he says things that other people cannot say. And you got to deal with it. As one of his hearers, you got to deal with this. What are you going to do with Jesus? Who do you say that Jesus is? You say, what do you mean? Jesus definitely did not speak like the scribes. He doesn't say when he's teaching, he doesn't say, you've heard it said of old, Rabbi, you know, Hillel says this, definitely doesn't speak like that in the Gospels, but neither does Jesus speak like an Old Testament prophet. And those were holy men that spoke with authority. And the way that they introduced their words were this, thus says the Lord, fill in the blank. And as you heard the words of the Old Testament prophets, you were hearing the word of God. Thus says 
the Lord. But Jesus speaks even differently than Old Testament prophets. Six times in the Sermon on the Mount. In chapter 5, Jesus says, but I say to you. Now think about that claim. You have heard it said of old, but I say to you. Jesus doesn't speak like an Old Testament prophet. He doesn't say, thus says the Lord. That's not a phrase that Jesus ever says. He says, but I say to you. Do you understand the claim here that he grounds his teaching in his own authority? Another six times in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says this, truly I say to you. The word truly in the Greek is the word amen. We are used to amening others after they say something's true. Jesus amens himself on the front end of the sentence. Think about this. Amen, I say to you. He grounds his teaching in his own authority and he amens what he says. He's in a category. There's no one that's ever spoken like this man. It has a ring of authority to it. And this forces the hearers to this confrontation. Will I accept him or will I reject the Lord Jesus? He's more confrontational than the scribes in this way. The scribes were externalists. All they cared about was that external conformity to the law of God. But the Lord Jesus is different. He, he, he aims to penetrate the heart. He, don't, he doesn't have time for superficial external religion. He aims to have the heart transformed. And so in Matthew 5 verse 20, Jesus looks... At the holiest men in Israel by reputation in Matthew 5.20. And he says to his hearers, unless you have a righteousness greater than theirs, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. All you need to obey the teaching of the scribes is willpower because they're externalists. But if you obey the teaching of Jesus, you need Holy Spirit power. You need a transformed heart. So he, he cuts you to a deeper place than these other men cut you. He shows you that this fleshly approach is completely inadequate. You need a total renovation, a total transformation. This is part of his authority. By his authority, he strips his hearers of self-righteousness. He refuses to let us smuggle any works righteousness into his kingdom. You hear that, that call when he says, enter the narrow gate. It's too narrow to bring your stuff with you. you got to come empty-handed. You can't bring your sins, but neither can you bring your good works. You have to come to Christ. You have to put your faith in Jesus. This is why early in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, verse 3, Jesus says that the only blessed ones in all the world, in the whole world over, are those who know that they're nothing. That they have no righteousness of their own. That they are wretched. That they are hell-deserving. They're poor in spirit. And Jesus says, if that's you, you're blessed. You're ready to enter the kingdom of God. In fact, you've already come in if you know that about yourself. That your only hope is to trust in Jesus Christ. He deals with the heart, not just the external. And there's a measure of authority as he confronts us. He confronts us like no teacher has ever confronted us. He lays the heart bare. He brings us to a crossroad. 
You will either obey or disobey. You will either believe or reject Jesus Christ. Now, this kind of teaching that Jesus is engaging in, not only in the Sermon on the Mount, but in all the Gospels, it has a tendency to offend some. And you need to know that. Authoritative teaching of the Scriptures has a tendency to offend some, and it always has. Merely offering other people religious suggestions is unlikely to offend them, but it also doesn't carry an authority. Authoritative teaching has a possibility of offending. And the way to avoid the confrontational nature of the Christian gospel is to not speak it authoritatively. You ever felt tempted to do that? To make it smooth, to make it go down easier, to take the offense out of the gospel of Jesus. George Whitfield said this, this was one of his resolutions. He says, I will not be a velvet mouthed preacher. Did you know that that category exists? You can smooth it down. You can make it easier to choke down. You can smooth the offensive edges off the Christian gospel. But Jesus never did that. Jesus spoke authoritatively. J.C. Ryle says this. There's a common worldly kind of Christianity in this day, which many have. A cheap Christianity, which offends nobody and requires no sacrifice which costs nothing and is worth nothing. So you need to be warned. That temptation to smooth it down and to speak about Jesus as though He were this accessory that can be added on to someone's life instead of speaking authority that He's Lord and He comes as Lord of all. If we give in to that temptation, we embrace a Christianity that costs nothing, but it's also worth nothing. It lacks power. The clearest place we see this confrontational aspect of Jesus' teaching is at the very end of the Sermon on the Mount. When he brings us to the two ways. The two ways to live. He puts everybody on two paths. And the person that sits back and you know, hears his teaching and says, No, I, I, I'm kind of neutral here. I don't think I belong on either one of those. Jesus says, Nope, two ways to live and only two ways to live. He tells us there's two gates, two paths, two destinations, and you're on one or you're on the other. If you're not on the narrow path that leads to life, you're on the broad path that leads to destruction. Jesus teaches us that there's two trees, a good tree that bears good fruit and a bad tree that doesn't bear good fruit. There's two professors. There's one who professes Jesus as Lord but does not do what Jesus says. And there's a professor that professes Him as Lord and does the will of God in heaven, there's two builders. There's one who hears the word of Jesus and doesn't do it. They build their life on sand. There's one who hears the word of Jesus and does it and builds their life on a rock. There's two ways to live. And as the hearers are hearing this man, they're feeling this confrontation. Which way am I going to go? Am I going to accept him or am I going to reject him? Because this is not a talk where you just get something to think about. If you don't accept him, if you don't follow him, it's counted as rejecting him. How are you going to respond to Jesus Christ? There's, 
an authoritative ring to his teaching. Most clearly, his authority is seen, and it shocked the crowds, it astounded the crowds, and what this man said about himself. And we're going to spend most of our time here this morning, point number three. What did Jesus claim in the Sermon on the Mount about himself? This is something that it's really good to get anchored down. Being a fan... We see this a lot of different ways, and it's been going on for a long time. Being a fan of the Sermon on the Mount, but rejecting the rest of the testimony of the New Testament about who Jesus is, the full deity of Christ, is a popular but incoherent position. This has been the position of many in history. And the idea here is, man, I love some of the things Jesus says here. And I want, to, I want to incorporate them into my life. I want to build them into my life. I mean, who speaks like this, that you love your enemies? I mean, no one ever spoke like this man. Uh, of If someone strikes you on one cheek, turn to them the other also. I mean, his ethics are out of this world. And, and I'm struck by the handling of the Lord Jesus in these matters. I'll read you just a few lines from Mahatma Gandhi. And this is just an example of how this kind of thing has been happening for a long time, specifically in the Sermon on the Mount. This is from an online biography. It says this. It is through the sermon that Gandhi came to appreciate the Bible. He knew Jesus Christ to be a great teacher of humanity. For he says, it is that sermon which has endeared Jesus to me. He considered the author of the Sermon on the Mount as one of the greatest among the teachers of humanity. And is a beautiful example of the perfect man. The Sermon on the Mount had a significant impact and role in the transformation of Gandhi's personality. For he said, the Sermon on the Mount, it went straight to my heart. And left a deep impression on my mind when I read it. Thus, the sermon made a permanent and lasting impact on Gandhi, and he followed it to the the end of his life. See, quotations like that make you think that Gandhi became a Christian. When someone says that Gandhi followed the Sermon on the Mount for the rest of his life, you're thinking, you mean the whole thing? And what you find out is they don't mean the whole thing. They mean the cherry-picked versions that they like out of the middle of the Sermon on the Mount and ignore the things that Jesus says about himself in the Sermon on the Mount. It's an incoherent, intellectual position. To say that Jesus was a great moral teacher with the highest ethics that anybody ever taught, and yet ignore what Jesus says about himself. Think about this. Think about the incoherence of this. If a man said what Jesus said about himself, and we're going to find about 12 of these statements in just a moment. If a man said what Jesus said about himself, and he was wrong about it, then the one thing you can never call him is the greatest moral teacher that ever lived. You could call him the most prideful man that ever lived, 
the most egocentric man that ever lived. You could call him a a raging lunatic, but you can't say the greatest moral teacher that ever lived. Makes you wonder what version of the Sermon on the Mount did Gandhi read? What version of the Sermon on the Mount did Gandhi follow? And this is just an example. You could give hundreds of other examples. Especially in the liberal church. We need to get back to the Sermon on the Mount. That simple teaching of Jesus to love our enemies. That simple Christ. You mean mean the Christ that claimed to be God in the Sermon on the Mount? You see, the fundamental thing that we must deal with is what does Jesus say about himself? Who is he? The Sermon on the Mount is not just about social ethics. And enemy love and non-retaliation, although those things are in there and they're glorious. The Sermon on the Mount is also about Christology. Who do you say that Jesus is? How will you respond to Jesus' teaching? And so we'll roll through several examples this morning of what Jesus said about himself in the Sermon on the Mount. This is the sharpest thing that hit those hearers as, whoa, that's authority. Never heard a man speak like he just spoke and say what he just said. Turn back to Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 12. The last phrase you'll find in verse 12 is Jesus pointing out, That they persecuted the prophets who were before you. He's referring to persecution that happened in the Old Testament. That there were those whose allegiance was with Yahweh. With the God of the Old Testament. But when you read what Jesus is saying in verse 11 and in verse 12. He's actually drawing a comparison. In verse 11 Jesus speaks about persecution. Last three words of verse 11. On my account. For my name's sake. And then in verse 12, he shows you that this is in the same category. Followers of Jesus who are suffering for his name are in the same category with Old Testament prophets who suffered for their allegiance to Yahweh, to God. And you're thinking, whoa, 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 this is a whole nother level. I mean, yeah, he's got nice things to say for my life, but you're talking about allegiance to him is the same as allegiance to God? And that's exactly what Jesus is saying in the Sermon on the Mount. And then think about the context of persecution and suffering. It's one thing for a man to say to you to follow me. It's another thing for that man to say, even if you suffer, even if you're persecuted, even if it costs you your life, come after me. If you suffer for my name, you are blessed, is what Jesus says. This is something different. He's claiming total allegiance. This man is claiming to be equal with God. This happens so many times in the Sermon on the Mount. Come to Matthew 5, verse 17. Matthew 5, verse 17, Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them, Jesus says. I want you to notice that one word, Come, it happens twice in verse 17. Now this is one of the differences between Jesus and us. Where were you before you were born? 
And the answer for all of us in this room is nowhere. I was nowhere before I was born. I was in the mind of God before I was born, and that's it. You were nowhere before you were born. Follow-up question, where was Jesus before he was born? You say, Jesus doesn't say, I was born to fulfill the law. He says, I came. The reference here is he came into this world to do something on a mission. Before, you know, when you were born, you became. When Jesus was born, he came. He's in a category all by himself. This is a veiled reference to the pre-existence of Jesus Christ. Before he was born, he was. Before we were born, we were nothing. And he does this several other times in the Gospels. Listen to what he says in John 8. John 8 verse 14, Jesus says, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and I know where I'm going. Now think of the weight of that coming from the lips of Jesus Christ. I know where I came from and I know where I'm going. But you do not know where I came from. And you do not know where I'm going. Now, understand, he's not saying, I know where I came from. I came from Nazareth. And you don't know where I came from. They knew he came from Nazareth. Do you see what Jesus is doing here? That same word came, and he's saying, I came out of eternity. I'm going back in eternity, and you don't know it. And we know that's the claim because in the same chapter, John 8, Jesus says this. John 8, 58, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. The pre-existent Son of God. He was before He was born. He was in the beginning with God. John 1.1. 1, 1. John 6.51. Jesus says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. No one else can ever say that. We, we become when we're born into this world. He came down from heaven on a rescue mission to save sinners. Matthew 5.17. Next word we could focus on is the word fulfill. I came to fulfill the law and the prophets. This is his teaching. If you say we need to get back to the Sermon on the Mount, this is part of the Sermon on the Mount. This is, this is the stuff that Jesus said about himself, that he came to fulfill the law and the prophets. Now I want you to think about this. He's standing in a world of sin and death when he says that. He's standing in this creation, the creation that has been wrecked by sin entering the world through one man and death through sin. And in this world of sin and death, Jesus says, I have come to fulfill the law and the prophets. This is an amazing claim. I mean, you're hearing him, you're saying, what a claim. Did you hear what he said? Because everybody that came before him, the one thing that they have in common is that they sin. The holiest men in the Old Testament, Adam, Abraham, David, Moses, all of them sinned. And this one just stood up in Galilee and he said, I, I have come to fulfill all the law and the prophets. He's teaching with that word that he is morally perfect. He is the sinless son of God, the spotless lamb of God. And so that claim, we need to get back to the Sermon on the Mount. This is part of it. The sinlessness of of the pre-existent Son of God. That word fulfill. Also, he says, all the law and the prophets. That's amazing stuff. That's, that's the language of the entire Old Testament. And so this is different 
than, you know, what we hear. We hear someone, you know, point out these glorious connections to Christ in the Old Testament. He didn't do that. When he pointed to them, he said, I'm here to fulfill them. In a category all by himself, all the types of the Old Testament, all the shadows, all the promises. He said, yeah, I'm here to wrap them up. They're all about me. That entire book, Genesis to Malachi, is about me. This is, a, this is, a, this is an astounding claim. Most egocentric claim that has ever been made. And the question is, is it true? Because he claimed it for himself. In Matthew 5... Several times Jesus presents his interpretation of Scripture, but I I say to you as the final interpretation of Scripture. It's the end of all debate. The legislator of the kingdom of God, when he speaks on the word of God, it's the end of all debate. It is the final interpretation. It is the word of God. So it wasn't Calvin said this, Luther says this, I don't know, go decide. He says, but I say to you, end of debate. Chapter 7, verse 22. Jesus prophesies in chapter 7. And we mention this. The, you know, the one thing that you know that's going to happen when Jesus prophesies is exactly what he says will happen. When he speaks, stuff happens. He pulls back the veil on the final day at the judgment of God in verse 22. Jesus says this, on that day, reference to judgment day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, the teacher of the Sermon on the Mount claims to have perfect knowledge of the final judgment. Where did he get this knowledge? And how can he be so sure about it? That's the ring of authority. Like, what do you mean? You mean you think this is how it's going to happen, right, Jesus? He says, no, on that day, this is how it's going down. He has perfect knowledge. He knows who's going to be blessed. He knows who's going to be cursed. He knows who's entered the narrow gate. He knows who's about to inhabit the city of destruction. Where did he get this knowledge? And how could he speak this way? Matthew chapter 7 verse 21. In the context of this final judgment, Jesus takes the divine title Lord and applies it to himself. He says, many are going to say to me on that day, Lord, Lord. You mean many are going to say to God on that day, Jesus, right? Jesus says, no, they're going to speak to me on that day and they're going to call me Lord. And even Lord, Lord. Now, it is perfectly true that the word Lord can have a more general sense of an earthly master in Scripture, kurios. Context determines if this is being used as a title for God. And there's no context more clear in all the New Testament that this is a divine title on the final day given to the eschatological judge, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's called Lord, Lord. The name of God given to Jesus Christ. In in Matthew chapter 7 verse 21... Jesus tells us who will enter the kingdom of heaven. And he says, those who do the will of the Father. That's that's the ones that are coming in. And you're thinking, okay, those who do the will of the Father are going to enter heaven. Simple enough. Then he comes back three verses later in verse 24. And Jesus says this. Everyone then who hears these words of mine 
and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. I hope you heard the connection here. He just connected the will of the Father with his words. They're the same. That when this man speaks, that's the word of the Father. They're one. His speech is the speech of God incarnate. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 24, Jesus expects that our whole life will be built upon his teaching. That's that imagery of you building a house, but that foundation needs to be on the rock of Jesus Christ. Now think about how different that is from that Gandhi approach. Cherry pick some of the teachings of Jesus and add them on as an accessory to my life. And I don't mean to pick on him. This happens all over the world every single day. Jesus is treated like an accessory to add on to my, you know, uh, a great life that needs to be improved. He is Lord and he speaks to us as Lord. And he says with that imagery, your whole life has got to be built off me, off my teaching. I'm the foundation, not some accessory. Everything else is built off of Christ. And so think about this. This teacher is calling for total allegiance with nothing held back. Absolute and total allegiance is the preacher of the Sermon on the Mount calling his hearers to. No one ever spoke like this man. No one ever spoke with this authority. No one could. Matthew 7, verse 23. Again, this is an amazing claim. You have this rabbi teaching his disciples and the surrounding, surrounding crowds. And in verse 23, when he prophesies about the final day and the final judgment, he talks about everybody lined up giving an account not to God, but to him. Many will say to me on that day, and I will speak to them on that day. He's teaching himself to be the final day judge, the judge of every man. And not only that, the criteria for his judgment is going to be personal knowledge of him. He says, depart from me, you workers of, of iniquity. I never knew you. Those who know Jesus are coming into the kingdom forever. Those who don't know Jesus are banished forever from the kingdom of God. This one's a little harder to get at, but look at what he says in verse 24. When he says the words, depart from me, what we know is happening in that story is they're being banished to eternal punishment, eternal destruction. This is hell forever, punishment forever. It's the worst thing imaginable, the destruction of everything good, the removal from everything good, everything beautiful. And yet, that phrase it's presented with that phrase that going into eternal destruction and going to the worst fate you could possibly imagine is equated with being removed from his presence. Depart from me. You cannot be in my presence. Best place you could possibly be. Most satisfied you will ever be is in the presence of Jesus forever. And the worst fate imaginable for a human being is to be removed from the presence of this rabbi from Nazareth. That's an amazing claim. I hope you get, the, you get the idea here that you can't say these things and be wrong and still be the greatest teacher of humanity that ever lived. In Matthew 7, verse 25, 
Jesus says he is the only foundation that will abide the storm of God's judgment. Those are beautiful words. Um, when Jesus says about the house who was hit with the storm of judgment that was built on the rock, he says it did not fall. That's this, that is the security of the believer who trusts in Jesus Christ that at the judgment of God, he is the only one that can save you from your sin. There's no other name under heaven by which we can be saved. He is the only way to the Father. This is an exclusive claim, not one way of many ways, but I am the rock. I am the foundation. Now, pause right there. Just focusing in on the Sermon on the Mount, we could go to a lot of other places in the Gospels, but think about this question. What higher claims could Jesus Christ have made about himself in the Sermon on the Mount? How could he have taken the stakes even higher than, than, than what we've already seen? And so when you hear folks talk about, we just need to get back to the simple Jesus of the Sermon on the Mount. Is this what we mean? It's hard to exaggerate how egocentric and prideful this would be if he were wrong about what he said. He speaks royally in the Sermon on the Mount as the king of the kingdom of heaven. He spoke with authority like no one has ever spoken. Not even a prophet. He knew he was the Christ and he taught himself to be God in the Sermon on the Mount. Now, why astonishment as the response? Why not fear? I want you to think about that. Why astonishment and why not fear? And I want us to consider together this morning the glory of Christ and his incarnation is a veiled glory. It's a, there's a veiledness to it. Say, so what do you mean? Well, just pointing out the obvious that in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus did not preach that day with laser beams coming out of his eyes. He didn't have fire coming out of his mouth. He wasn't levitating off the ground and slinging lightning bolts like the Greek gods. It just looked ordinary. It's like an ordinary rabbi. The crowd heard a preacher that seemed ordinary. In fact, they knew him to be the carpenter's son from Nazareth. No formal rabbinic training. Seemed to be an ordinary teacher, a holy man with an ordinary life. This is before Jesus becomes famous in Israel. And that's who's sitting before them speaking these words. Isaiah 53 verse 2 says this, He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. That's an astounding claim about Jesus Christ. Isaiah said he had no outward glory. What that means is that you could have been walking down the street right beside him and not known this is God in the flesh right beside you. Why? Because you couldn't see it with your eyes. There was nothing outward about him that would tip you off to his nature. It was veiled. It seemed so ordinary. Even his own family in the Gospels did not recognize him initially for who he was. So when Jesus started preaching in Galilee, we remember what happens, right? His family comes and tries to smuggle him back to Nazareth because they think he's out of his mind, that he's, going, he's off his rocker, he's going crazy. Why? Because he's teaching these things about himself. 
That's an amazing thing that you could have looked at him with your physical eyes and still been blinded to his true nature. This is the mystery of the incarnation. God manifested in the flesh. So he seems to be this ordinary man on the mountain. But he speaks in this extraordinary way. And the crowds are astonished. Why astonished? Well, if he came in that other way that we talked about, everybody would be prostrate, right? But they're astonished because they're trying to reconcile these two realities. What they see appears to be an ordinary man, but what they hear is a man speaking with power that they've never heard ever before in their life. The word astonished can mean struck out of your senses. It can mean astounded. It can mean that you are overwhelmed. It can mean that you are dumbfounded. Or maybe even best in this context is befuddled. You just can't sort it out. you got two things coming in, and you don't have a slot for this. That's their response to the Sermon on the Mount. This word, as you read the Gospels, astonished, is not necessarily a saving response to Jesus Christ. Some in the Gospels, we are told, were astonished that go on to reject Jesus. And others in the Gospels are astonished, go on to believe and follow Jesus Christ. And so this word should not be understood as synonymous with salvation. This word describes this initial mark that Jesus made in the minds of his hearers. That state of inner crisis that Jesus brings his hearers to. They're astonished. The label looks like ordinary man, but the contents of the package don't seem to meet the label. They don't know how to sort it out. Never heard a man speak. Like Jesus spoke. If he is who he really says he is, then why does Jesus look so humble, so lowly, and so ordinary? That's the veiledness of the glory of Christ. The veiledness of his glory. Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7 say this about Jesus. He was in the form of God. And yet he did not count equality with God as something to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. You should go back and look at this text later. The word form is used three times in three verses. And it's the form of God, the form of a servant, and then in human form. And the glorious reality... Of the incarnation of Jesus is he's equal with God. He has the form of God, but it's veiled in in his incarnation. He takes on the form of a servant. That means you can look at him and you don't know who you're looking at with your physical eyes. He has the form of God, but it's behind a veil. The veil of the form of a servant. As we read the Gospels, we realize that the only ones who perceive who Jesus really is, were not those who physically saw him, but those who spiritually saw him. Those who believed. Those who trusted in him. In fact, faith is the only thing in the Gospels that perceives behind that veil to the true state of things. Past that outward appearance to the true nature of Jesus Christ. Listen to John chapter 1. Gives us both realities here. 
Beginning in verse 10, he was in the world and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. Now think about how curious statements like that are in scripture. He made the world. He's in the world, but the world doesn't know it. And you're thinking, how in the world could that be? That's the veiledness of his glory. John goes on to write, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So you have these two groups, again, these two ways. The one who made the world comes into the world. He came to his own and they rejected him. They did not believe. They did not receive Jesus. But those who did receive him, those who believed in his name, they saw his true nature. John chapter 1 verse 14 says we have beheld his glory. That's what it means to be saved. You see glory when you behold Jesus Christ. Glory. The glory of grace and truth. And so on that day as the Sermon on the Mount closed, there were some who were more than befuddled. They were truly astonished at what they had heard. By faith they perceived that this man who was preaching was truly God in the flesh. They believed that the carpenter's son from Nazareth was the king of the kingdom of heaven. And that they realized that their only hope was to build their life on the rock that was Christ Jesus. Do you know that this is the only way that anyone has ever become a Christian? is they have perceived beyond the outward appearance and they have gazed upon Christ by faith and they see glory. That there's none like Him. He is, he is the Son of God that has come into this world to save sinners. He has all authority in heaven and on earth. And the whole reason He veiled it was for us and for our salvation. His nature can only be perceived by faith. And so as we close, I'll leave you with this question. Have you seen His glory? Have you beheld the glory of Jesus Christ past this outward state, past what it appears to be? Have you gazed upon Jesus by faith and beheld His glory? In the words of 2 Corinthians 4, you could ask it this way. Has the God of Genesis 1 the one who says, let light shine out of darkness, has he shown into your heart and given you light as you behold the glory of Jesus Christ? Has that happened in you? Have you seen more than just religious stories about Jesus? Is he the glorious one? No one like him? This is who faith perceives. The light of the gospel of the glory of of Christ. This is salvation. Coming to see the glory of Jesus is salvation. And so the most fundamental takeaway from the Sermon on the Mount is not what do you think about Jesus' principle of non-aggression or non-violence. The most fundamental takeaway from the Sermon on the Mount is who do you say that Jesus is? Is He Lord? Is He Lord of all? And to the brothers and sisters, I want to remind us that the same way we come in to the kingdom of God is how we grow. 
This is one of the favorite you know, verses on sanctification. The 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. It says that we are beholding with unveiled face the glory of Jesus Christ. He's not just a story or religious teacher. When we see him, the Bible says that we see glory. And as we do that, the Bible says it's not just this empty endeavor, that as we behold the glory of Jesus, we are transformed into the same image. The key to sanctification is Jesus Christ. Everything about the Christian life is to be about Christ. He's to be our meditation We are to be infatuated with Him. He calls for total allegiance. And so we want our mind, our hearts, our whole life to be filled up with His glory. It is His glory alone that will satisfy the believer and His glory alone that will sanctify the believer. And so I encourage you, let's look to Him. Let's trust in Him. Let's love Him with all of our hearts, all of our minds. Let's put our trust in Him. Let's behold His glorious perfections. Let's submit to His authority and build our whole life on His teaching. Let's pray together. Lord, we lift up our souls to You this morning. God, we pray that You would refresh us with Your Word, Lord Jesus. Lord, we pray for the simple reminders to come that You are all that matters at the end of the day. That your glory is all that matters. And we want your name to be hallowed in this church and in our life. Lord, please help us. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and worship.